Support for AHLA and the following message comes from KPMG's Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice, helping clients comply with regulatory change, adopt effective tax strategies, improve outcomes through data analytics and advanced technologies, and more. For more information, visit kpmg.us. Hi, I am Ruth Madrigal from KPMG, a sponsor of the AHLA Tax Issues for Healthcare Organizations program here in sunny Virginia. I'm here with Preston Quesenbury from KPMG, who is a speaker at this program this morning. Preston, what did you talk about this morning? Well, this morning we talked about two new provisions in uh, that were part of tax reform, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The, uh, the first one was the new executive uh, or the new tax on executive compensation under uh, Section 4960. Uh, and the other one we talked about was the tax on qualified transportation fringe benefits under 512A7. So I was in your section this morning, and uh, there was a lot of time spent on the calculation of 4960. I think a lot of organizations um, were grappling with the parking tax. As you mentioned, you got a, a hundreds of calls of situations that were presented to you uh, earlier in the year, but um, more recently, folks have been looking at 4960 with additional interest. Is that right? Yeah, I think that think that's right. I think. Um, the parking tax, as it's become known, was um, given its effective date. That was sort of the first wave for a lot of uh, tax-exempt organizations struggling with these, these new rules, and they had to kind of get their position straight. So we sort of dealt with that first, and now I, I think the focus has really shifted to, to 4960 and how that tax is going to be reported paid and reported on the, on the Form 4720. And let's just procedurally, there haven't been proposed regs on either of these taxes, correct? That's right. All we have, we have two notices right now um, that were both released in December of 2018, and taxpayers can rely on those notices if they want to, but, uh, but they aren't stated rules, and, and these precede even proposed regulations, much, le much less final regulations. Um, with respect to the, uh, the notice under uh, Section 4960, the IRS said in the meantime, before final regulations are issued, you can use any good faith, reasonable interpretation of the statute. Uh, similarly, in the notice on qualified transportation fringes, the IRS said you can use any um, reasonable method to determine um, what amounts have to be included in EBTI. Great. So let's focus a little bit on, um, on the 4960 uh, compensation excise tax. Uh, you talked a bit, about, a bit this morning about difficulties in calculation for, uh, for exempt organizations, so for the hospital systems out there that are tax-exempt, what, what are you finding are difficulties in calculating, and what are some tips you have for them? Uh, yeah, I think the main difficulty is that the amount that, is, that you're going to use to determine um, remuneration, which is the term under 4960, uh, 4960 specifically taxes your remuneration over $1 million paid to covered employees. And this definition of remuneration that's paid is different than any amounts that the hospital is necessarily going to report on the W-2, than any amounts that they're necessarily going to report uh, on their tax return or information return in the case of a tax exempt. So it, it, you really have to scrutinize it with a new lens and come, out with, come up with sort of a third category of 
you know, this is what my remuneration is for 4960 purposes because of the different rules. So I think, you know, working through that thinking process has, has been probably the, the most difficult or one of the more difficult aspects is having to do that, that calculation. So what are some of the differences? Well, um, it, it, a lot of it boils down to the fact that uh, 4960 and the, and the notice reiterates that. They say as far as the, the timing of uh, when remuneration is considered paid, it's based on when, when there is no longer a substantial risk of forfeiture for purposes of 457F. And they say the notice in particular points to the proposed regulations under 457F, but that's a particular concept of vesting that doesn't always match up when you're going to report that income in box one of your W-2 or box five of your W-2. Uh, and so I think it's mostly that, that timing mismatch that's going to create the difficulty. Um, you know, otherwise, remuneration is defined um, by cross-reference to 3401, which are wages for federal income tax withholding purposes. So that does give you one defined base, but it's the timing that's going to be different. And two examples that my co-panelist uh, went into uh, as to where you might see that differential. One is uh, what are called short-term deferrals. And just to give you an example, if you were um, a taxable employer, uh, say an, an employee gets a right to, let, let's assume that you're on a calendar year and you're, a, you're an employer. Um, if the em employee gets a right to a certain amount of income in December of year one, but the amount isn't actually paid until January or February of year two. Like a bonus? Uh, uh, like a bonus. Uh, so it doesn't, it's not actually paid until the following year, but you could say it vests in the, the prior year because the employee had a right to it. For W-2 purposes, uh, because of an exception in 457F, basic, and there's also similar rules under 409 Cap A, you, you basically can um, include that amount in income in the January or February when it's actually paid, not when it's vested, as long as you fall within a two and a half month period in the following year. But you know, for 457F purposes, if you look at well, when did that really vest, when was there no longer a substantial risk of forfeiture, well, that really happened in year one in December. So for 4960 purposes, you would have to include that bonus in your example in year one, even though it's not going to be included under W-2 until year two. Uh, so these are the kinds of timing is yeah. issues that could be difficult uh, for a hospital system that is keeping track of compensation for reporting purposes and now right. has to keep track of it for 4960 purposes. That's right. That makes sense. What about employees that um, you may have employees in a hospital system that perform services for multiple uh, organizations within that system? Yeah, I would say that's uh, either tied for or, you know, yeah, I would say tied for the most, most complicated uh, or difficult issue that hospital systems in particular are struggling with with the stats is that, um, you know, you've got you've oftentimes have one individual who is doing important work for multiple legal entities within the system. Um, and in a tax exempt system in particular, that's multiple different tax exempt entities. Um, and before it didn't really matter too much who that individual was really considered an employee of. Um, you know, as long as all the employment tax was being paid and all the compensation, there wasn't that much at stake. But it, at least with the, the notice states now, and um, and maybe there's some basis for this in, in the statute as well, is you've really got to figure out, okay, you know, which of these organizations, tax-exempt organizations that are part of the system are actually employers for common law purposes 
uh, for this individual and how should that person's time and um, functions and compensation remuneration be allocated amongst all these various entities. And that can make a, a difference when you're coming up with your, when you're going entity by entity and coming up with your list of top five in terms of how that individual is allocated uh, to different entities. So I think that's a struggle for a lot of systems to have to go through that exercise. So we've been talking a bit about issues that are affecting uh, the tax exempt systems, but what about taxable hospital systems? Does this tax apply to them too? It does, not in the, in the first instance. I mean, in the first instance, the tax only applies to what are called applicable tax exempt organizations. And, and in your hospital context, that's typically going to be limited to your, your, 501, your organizations that are tax exempt under 501A, your 501C3s and, and C4s. Uh, but what the statute provides is that once you've determined your top five employees, your covered employees for an applicable tax exempt organization, uh, the tax then applies to the remuneration paid not only by that tax exempt organization, but also any related organizations. Uh, and related organizations, um, it's arguably implicit in the statute, but the, the notice makes clear include, can include taxable organizations. So this would be like a, a taxable healthcare system that has a foundation uh, somewhere in the mix, a, a charitable foundation. That's right. If you have a, a system, a uh, healthcare system that's mostly taxable, it's not uncommon that there will be some tax exempt in that mix, like a foundation in, in your example. And so say if you have a foundation, uh, the first step would be to say, okay, well, who are the top five highly compensated employees in that tax exempt organization? Um, and then when you're determining whether or not there's any tax uh, on the remuneration received by those employees, you have to look to any related organization, which would include all the taxable organizations in that system. So what if this foundation um, is really doing good things in the community, they're making grants for health purposes in the community, and the only folks from the rest of the system, they, there are some executives from the for-profit hospitals that serve on the board, uh, I mean, and, and service officers of this foundation. And you may have some other employees that do some volunteer time with the foundation. Does this include them too? Um, you know, well, well, I think the, the first step you would have to go through is just to, you know, A, make sure that this tax exempt, the foundation that you're talking about, is indeed a related organization of, of a taxable entity in the system. Um, and if you look at the if you look at the statute, it just talks about concepts of control. So the question would be, is this tax exempt organization controlled by one or more taxable entities in the system? There's no definition of control in the statute, but in the notice, which again is not binding, but what they set forth as a proposal for a definition of control is based on um, this UBIT statute, 512B13, uh, which really relates to just payments between related tax exempts or taxable and tax exempts, um, you, they, they look to that definition. And what that definition, um, well, I guess one thing to note about that definition is that it actually either applies to a tax exempt parent and a taxable sub, or it applies to two tax exempts or two non-stocks. It does not actually even have a definition for say a taxable healthcare organization and a tax exempt subsidiary. So there's no technical definition. But extending the principles in the notice, what it would say would be if, if essentially a majority of the board of that tax exempt is appointed or elected by the taxable, it would be considered controlled. Um, 
And that might make a certain amount of sense. I think another in the situation that we talked about where yeah. you've got the foundation that's doing things in the community on behalf of the system. But what about if you've got, um, are there other situations beyond that that it would apply to? Yeah, I mean, so in addition to the appointment or, or election prong of the definition, there's also this uh, conception of having representatives on the board. So if the tax-exempt organization, if a majority of its board are, quote, represented representatives of the taxable organization, then that tax-exempt is considered controlled by uh, the taxable organization. So, and, and the definition of representatives is pretty broad. It includes directors of the taxable organization, officers of the taxable organization, but also employees, agents. So if there's, under that definition, if there's any tax-exempt organization out there and a majority of its board uh, happen to be employees or, or agents or officers, directors of a taxable, it will be considered related and potentially uh, brought into this excise tax. Now that could be really broad and brought bring in a number of organizations that, that one wouldn't ordinarily think of as related to or controlled by if you're taking into account employees' activities outside. What, how would that interact with employees that are just volunteering their time outside of the organization and some of these charitable entities? Well, I think that that's been the, the big question here because, I mean, the starting point when you've got a tax-exempt foundation um, for purposes of determining this tax is to determine, okay, well, uh, who are the top five highest compensated employees? So one threshold question is, does it have, who are its employees? Are, are the people who are volunteering for the organization really employees or not? Um, and in the tax exempt world, we've got lots of volunteers and we would never confuse volunteers with, an empl with employees. Is that yeah. a tougher question here? Well, yeah, and I think there is the, I think there's that common sense conception that if you're a volunteer, you're not an employee, you're not being paid to do anything. Um, and I, I think there are a number of um, uh, legal precedents in non-tax areas that you could point to to say, uh, you know, well, look, this court in this particular area, whether it's Department of Labor context or other contexts, has held that volunteers are not employees. Um, there's also various tax contexts you could point to where the IRS has reached that conclusion. Um, on the other hand, there are certain authorities out there where the IRS, for one reason or another, for employment tax purposes, has wanted to say no, a volunteer can be an employee. And, and so there is some, I think, tension there that the IRS is, is grappling with on that, on that so, question. So that's something to watch for in proposed regs, whether or not they consider uh, employees that are doing volunteer work in charities to be acting on behalf of the organization. Yeah, and, and the reason that it's relevant is you could say, well, what does it what does it matter if they're not getting any any compensation when you're when you're coming up with your top five for the tax exempt? But the notice at least suggests that in coming up with your top five of the tax exempt, you pull in all the compensation from related organizations. So if you have some tax, if you have some executives that are say volunteering for uh, the uh, for the tax exempt foundation, what the notice would say is you bring in all of those executives pay from the taxables and coming up with your top five. And so there, you know, if you would determine that even though they're just volunteering, they're actually employees, you would bring in that compensation, then they're, you know, most likely if they're executives, they're gonna be in the top five for the foundation. And then if they're covered employees, it's clear you would also tax the remuneration by a taxable organization. So um, once you determine that even a volunteer can actually be an employee, then a whole set of 
potential horribles can occur from that threshold determination. So I think it, you know, hopefully the IRS will set parameters where they say, no, you know, if you're really acting in a volunteer capacity and you could show that, um, you are not considered an employee in the first instance and you don't have to worry about any of the, any of the following consequences. But right now that was left ambiguous in the notice just because they didn't address it. The IRS has also made clear they haven't, re they didn't really think through it at all when they issued the notice. So I don't, I don't think anyone should read anything negative into the notice either, but it's an unaddressed question at this stage. That we're looking to for, for the, the regulations to try to get some, some more of an idea where the IRS might be going on this. Um, and are you advising clients to, to pay attention, even if they're in the for-profit space, to look out for these regs? Yes, most definitely. And I think, um, and particularly on, on that point, that presumably they've, they've heard, and the IRS and Treasury have heard enough of this issue that I think we can anticipate some sort of way to address it. And whether that's going to be some sort of de minimis carve-out, that if your executives at the taxable are doing, you know, a, a certain percentage of their time or less at the tax exempt, you can just disregard it. Uh, whether it's some sort of, you know, minimal services exception along those lines, it, it's hard to say at this point. But I think you can expect something, and I think uh, taxables should be on the lookout when those proposed regs uh, come out to um, see what that exception is and see if it covers them. And if it doesn't, certainly to let Treasury and IRS know. Yep, sounds good. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. Sure.